Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Today, I'm coming at you from Italia. We are here for a wedding, Anthony's cousin's wedding, one that took place at Caracalla, the same deconsecrated church that launched our own wedded bliss nearly five years ago. I can't believe it's actually been five years since we got married. Thus, for this week's episode, I thought it might be nice to take you down memory lane for a bit and share with you our proposal story. But before I do, just a word of caution. Happy endings, as ours certainly is, need to be earned. As such, before we get to the aforementioned wedded bliss, we'll be visiting a few rather dark valleys that will, I hope, help to define the contours of my joy at meeting the love of my life. So, buckle up. And let's get to it. Currently, I am sitting in my hotel room in Rome, Italy. I always make a point to specify the country because in college, I read a novel in which the main character ends up going all the way to Rome, Italy to meet some friends only to discover that her friends meant Rome, Georgia, as in Georgia peaches. If you've been following along, you might be saying to yourself, geez, you guys spend half your lives in Rome. Might as well just like live there, why don't you? Well, you might be onto something there. We do spend quite a lot of time in Italy. We were just here back in April of this year for my birthday, sort of. The hotels were a little bit too expensive to book a holiday during my actual birthday, so we came here the week before. And we were here last December, right before Christmas, during which it rained almost every single day. Anthony got COVID, and I had a terrible allergic reaction to a glass of delicious red wine and ended up passing out in the shower because I was too embarrassed to faint in front of Anthony who was by that time suffering through COVID. As I mentioned at the very outset, we are here now for a wedding, one that happened to fall just one day after the conclusion of some work that brought me to Cannes, France, practically a hop, skip, and a jump away from Rome. And we may end up living here one day. The other morning, while taking a stroll down one of the many cobbled streets of the city, we paused at the window of a very tiny, cute, adorable little realtor. Someone had taped printouts of homes for sale ranging from 345,000 to 2.5 million euros. Oh, look, it's your favorite. Maybe you can find our house in Italy, I said to Anthony, referring to one of the many open-ended discussions he'd started about buying a second home in the country his father was born. He lingered at the window for a moment before mumbling, I need more pictures. We resumed our walk towards the shafts of morning light spilling out from the piazza below us. As I laced my fingers through his, he asked, if you had to say right now where in Italy you would want to buy a second home, what would it be? Anthony doesn't ask a lot of questions. He's much better at answering all of mine. I once asked him why he never asked me any questions, and he answered, because I know everything I need to know about you, to which, of course, I rolled my eyes and said, God, you're so arrogant. This then kicked off one of the many robust conversations we had early on in our relationship about conversational etiquette, something about which I have very specific opinions, which are not surprisingly heavily influenced by East Asian tenets of hospitality. But I digress. (laughs) Suffice it to say, I always relish the opportunity to share something of me about which Anthony has expressed a genuine curiosity, even if it's a small thing like where our imaginary fantasy home in Italy might be. 
A slideshow of photos from our time in Sardinia click through in rapid succession in my head. The jolly rancher blue water when the sun is hot compared to the hoary blue-gray that blankets the sea when the clouds roll through the craggy tips of ancient mountains. Let's see. Right now, um, I stalled. More Polaroids. Bone-white buildings with clusters of violet bougainvillea dripping from the eaves. Slivers of sparkling blue sapphire between their ivory faces cascading past me like an old-fashioned motion picture show as I get my morning run in before breakfast. An old man with hair as white as sea foam and swarthy fingers tucking into a plate of ruby tomatoes and unleavened carousel. Sardinia was seductive with its slowness. Even the water, lilting softly between long fingers of hewn rocks and sun-drenched bluffs, seemed to understand that life was more enjoyable when we took the time to drink it in. There, no one will judge you for showing up to the beach wearing the same slightly too small two-piece bathing suit you've had since college with the Birkenstocks that know the shape of your feet better than you do. And no one will give you side-eye for toting your morning groceries in a bag you got for free from the bookstore you used to frequent when you lived in Boys Town, Chicago. If you try to brag about the home you're building in West Hollywood or the tinted windows of your new Tesla, they'll stare at you as if you're certifiable until you realize that here, you have permission to bow out of this race you can't even remember signing up for. I'd often daydreamt out loud to Anthony that I'd be happy to leave behind the hustle and bustle of the states and permanently relocate along the island's glittering shores, writing cookbooks and vignettes while sinking my teeth into tomatoes and fleshy green olives until I died. But I surprised even myself by answering here, in Rome, and right next to the Korean market. Here I will depart from the maxims of good writing and inject an aphorism, one as hackneyed and overused as a dilapidated buggy on an Amish farm. Home is where the heart is. I'm too cynical or stupid, I don't know which, to derive any definitive opinions on whether this aphorism is true. But perhaps it helps to explain why the answer to Anthony's rare question is Rome, a city that is decidedly dirtier, unhealthier, expensiver, and unsafer than Sardinia. Moreover, unlike the quiet island of our honeymoon, Rome is fit to bursting with all the trappings of the conspicuously consumptive rat race, with Chanel and Prada stores nearly as prevalent as Starbucks in Manhattan, where Ferraris are as likely to thread the needle-like streets of Trastevere as a Vespa held together by duct tape. So why Rome? Well, we were married here, nearly five years ago, in a small, deconsecrated church, housing furniture upholstered in wine-red silk arranged in unimaginative rows over a thin, worn rug of the same color, and an elegantly decapitated statue that hid behind a stand of a very large plant bearing a visible layer of dust on its plastic-looking leaves. I know, it sounds glamorous, doesn't it? Of course, I'd wanted to get married in a towering cathedral with stained glass windows and updated upholstery, but the laws are very strict in the capital city of the Catholic Church. I was a divorcee, and as such, I was permanently disqualified from getting married in a Roman church. Thus, we'd settled for Caracalla, a still stately, if painfully outdated, municipal building that performed ceremonies with the same efficiency as Quickilope Chapel on the Strip. We got married in July, and though Rome is infamously hot and humid during that time of year, God blessed us with a little rain earlier in the day. I'd been worried the storm would last throughout the day and completely derail our outdoor reception, but God was indeed good that day and cast the skies only as long as was needed to cool the city off. 
By the time I met my betrothed inside the ex-church, the clouds had evaporated, and all that was left of the rain was a slight dampness clinging to the stones around us. Because we weren't inside an actual church, the ceremony was much like what you might expect inside a city hall. There was no pastor or priest or person of worship. Rather, we were married by a city official, one I'd never met prior to showing up in my wedding dress. I'd asked my brother Jason to stand as my man of honor, and Anthony appointed his own little brother David as his best man, but in actuality they served as witnesses to our nuptials, signing the official wedding documents in their capacity before our guests. Anthony's second cousin Flaviana served as the official translator, and Anthony's other second cousin Ludovica and her then-boyfriend John played an arrangement of Bach's aria from the Goldberg Variations on the violin and cello, respectively, an arrangement that Anthony prepared just for our wedding. Though it was totally unnecessary, we tagged on the exchange of rings at the end only because it felt weird not to say our vows with the rings we'd picked out earlier that spring at a jewelry store recommended to us by Anthony's cousin, Daniela. I suppose most brides are laser beam focused on their grooms or remembering their vows or, I don't know, not passing out after the six-week starvation plan that will guarantee you fit into your wedding dress. But perhaps because of how much of the ceremony was in a language I couldn't understand, I found my mind drifting quite a lot before I said, I do. I counted the stones stacked together like rows and rows of broken teeth that encased us inside a cavernous red mouth wondering how many secrets they could tell if one decided to crack them open. How many loves and not quite loves had they witnessed within these four walls? How often had they correctly predicted the outcome of the unions cemented inside a building that had truly tested the definition of forever? As I stood there waiting to become a wife, I decided to tell them my own secret, a story I hadn't yet shared with anyone, not even Anthony. One of my earliest memories takes place in the apartment my parents rented by Swedish Covenant, the hospital my mother worked at in Ravenswood for the majority of her career. This memory is old, like a piece of fabric inside my pocket, one that I've been fingering for 40 plus years, a fragment torn from a much larger bolt of cloth in a color I couldn't even guess at anymore. I was probably around three years old. My parents had had guests over that evening. One of them was a man. And when it was time for them all to leave, I walked out with my mother and father to say goodbye. I remember thinking what a treat it was that I'd been allowed to stay up so late, to walk out with the grown-ups. I remember looking up at the yellow stars, how they reminded me of the prickling that spread across my legs when I tried to walk after they'd fallen asleep, how I'd laughed when Harmony explained to me in all seriousness that legs could fall asleep even if the brain attached to them was wide awake. I remember holding my mother's hand. I remember I was wearing Oshkosh-Bagosh overalls, and the only reason I can remember that is because I can still see the yellow words stitched into the pocket that covered my chest, the one that the man slipped a rolled-up dollar bill into before he winked at me, said goodnight, and disappeared into the darkness. Amma fished out the dollar bill and promised she would hold on to it for me, I didn't understand money at the time, but there was something about the way the crisp bill had been rolled up just like one of my father's cigarettes and then slid down the pocket like a straw that made me feel special, extraordinary. 
and slightly wrong. That is all I remember. Memories are slippery things. As soon as you try to grasp them, they grow too slick to hold. It's entirely possible I wasn't wearing Oshkosh Bagosh overalls that night, but some other no-named brand. In fact, knowing what I now know about my parents' financial situation at that time in our lives, I'm pretty sure no-name brand is far likelier. It's also possible that when I looked up into the sky, there were no stars staring down at me, that I never even looked up at all, that it was just my mom out there that night saying goodbye to our guests, or that there was only one guest instead of the handful I remember, or that it was a $20 bill, not a $1 bill, that found its way into my pocket, and that my mom never took it from me, or that she did and never gave it back, or that she didn't even see it slithering down the front of my chest. And it's also possible that this man... He never winked at me, never gave me the money, or if he did, never meant anything by it. I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't unsure of every detail attached to this tiny swatch of memory I've been carrying around with me for over four decades. But of one thing I am certain, I've carried with me the feeling of slightly wrong ever since that night. And it's grown. What started out as a tiny, barely visible dot on my skin turned into blotchy, raised, and sometimes angry patches across my entire body. Over the years, I'd gotten very good at ignoring it, as one might a chronic case of eczema, but every once in a while, it would surface, usually when I was traveling and far afield from the anchor of home. As I've discussed in an earlier episode, during my freshman year in college, I coped with the separation anxiety of my long-distance relationship with my first boyfriend by taking over-the-counter sleeping pills. And once, I took too many and was carted off against my will to the emergency room. After finally being discharged, a male friend, a much older male friend, he picked me up from the hospital and took me to his motel room. A cheap, not exactly clean room at the Red Roof Inn with two double beds and one of those old AC units that take up 80% of the window. He told me it was because he wanted to get me out of the dorm room, the scene of the crime, if you will, that if I stayed in his motel room, he could keep an eye on me all night. I didn't want to be there, but I felt I owed him for making the three-hour drive from Chicago to come pick me up at the ER, something he insisted on doing no matter how much I told him not to. It's entirely possible that he was being genuine when he said these things, but as I stared out the window of the Red Roof Inn into the near-empty parking lot, that same feeling, the one I'd been burying since I was three years old, took hold of me so violently. I almost started writhing right then and there atop the grungy blanket on the bed. I can't explain this feeling other than to say I felt covered in filth. That I was the dirtiest, most shameful, most disgusting girl in the world. And that I was surrounded by empty parking lots. The soulless isolation that I deserved for my foulness. From that day on, I called this feeling the parking lot feeling. I asked him to take me back to the dorms, and he obliged. Based upon what I've described, you can imagine what it felt like to lose my virginity. 
Despite doing so to the man who would become my very first husband, the shame was devastating. Immediately afterwards, I felt my stomach caving in as I curled up into a ball against the wall of my bedroom as my boyfriend tried to comfort me. I hated his hands. I hated his voice. I hated my body. I hated the wood paneling that stuck to my back. I hated everything that threatened to touch me, to remind me of my realness, the space I took up in this world that could go from totally normal to monstrous in a moment. This feeling, the parking lot feeling, attended every moment of intimacy I ever shared with any man with varying degrees of severity. Sometimes, barely a hint of it, like a thumbprint pressed against my thigh, and other times, suffocating. I would duck into the bathroom, biting the heel of my hand, willing the feelings of filth and shame to shrink into a fist-sized ball that I could push down into the pit of my stomach until I could walk out as a normal person again, with no sign of the battle I'd just waged. They say you can get used to anything, even if you shouldn't have to. In China, they used to bind the feet of little girls from four to six years old to make them smaller and more attractive to men. The four smaller toes of each foot would be bent towards the heel and wrapped with bandages that were up to 10 feet long. The process of winding and unwinding the very long bandages meant that they were worn for up to 48 hours at a time, which led to blisters, welts, and sometimes even gangrene. While this barbaric practice caused unspeakable pain and often resulted in crippling deformities, the practice produced the desired effect permanently smaller feet, and some believe an advantage in passing desirable traits, i.e. smaller feet, onto future generations. Scientists attribute these irreversible adaptations to physical plasticity. I assumed that the parking lot feeling was the toll I had to pay, not just for falling in love, but for being who I am. That it was indeed a part of me, just like my elbow or liver, and that when it roared into my very fingertips, I could take comfort in knowing that in a few minutes, it would recede into my consciousness like every tide eventually does. In other words, after 35 years of clenching my fists around empty parking lots, I assumed that this adaptation was irreversible. And then, I met Anthony. So I'm not going to rehash the details of our relationship here. You can listen to several other podcast episodes for that. But I will say ours was a somewhat volatile courtship, at least in the beginning. We fought as often as we kissed and even broke up about six months in. Though I would tell everyone who asked that, oh, no, I'm not interested in marriage as the logical consequence of my divorce, deep down, I knew that I was only saying this to myself and everyone else to save face. I wanted to marry Anthony, even if he wasn't ready to marry me. On our second date, I discovered that despite being 42 years old, the longest relationship Anthony had ever been in lasted a total of six months. 
When I asked him why he found long-term relationships so challenging, he replied with a shrug, I get bored. I laughed then, as if there was nothing more ridiculous than the idea of a man getting bored with a bevy of women who rotated in and out of his life for a quarter of a century, but over a year into our relationship with no I love you in sight, it occurred to me that Anthony may never have uttered those words to any woman before in his life, and that as such, I might never hear them from him, not before he grew bored. Nevertheless, over time, we made it past various romantic milestones, the adoption of pet names like Babe, taking our very first trip together to Florida, moving in together, and finally saying the three most overused words in the English language. We were at O'Hare. He was on his way to Rome, where he would be teaching for the summer and where I would be joining him in 13 days. I was dropping him off at the curb. The last of his luggage pulled out, I closed the trunk, and we kissed goodbye. And just as I was ready to get back in the car before I got yelled at by airport security, he slipped the words into the air as if he'd been saying them to me every single day since he slid into my OkCupid okay DMs in 2014. He dropped the phrase so casually, I literally asked him, wait, did, did you just say I love you? Yes, that's what I said, he answered in his characteristically almost but not quite sardonic way. I love you too, I said as nonchalantly as I could muster, even though I knew that he knew that I was practically bouncing up and down on the balls of my feet. Yes, I was 36 years old and still addicted to the butterflies that this piano guy from the South Loop could bring to life in my stomach. Even then, it wasn't smooth sailing going forward. Over two years later, by which time I made no secret of my desire to get married, I wrote the following in my journal. I asked him straight up, I need to know where we are in our relationship. What is our future? His answer sounded canned, exactly the same as the last time. Quote, I see that the natural progression is getting married, maybe having kids, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't have concerns. End quote. Part of the urgency, of course, was biological. At 38 years old, the clock wasn't just ticking, it was gonging. I decided that if we wanted to ensure our ability to, quote, maybe have kids at some point in the future, even if he had some, quote, concerns that prevented us from getting married, I would have to take care of it on my own. And I went on the egg freezing journey that I've talked about before. I was thus flush with excess hormones when we got into yet another massive fight right after my egg retrieval surgery. I don't even remember what we were fighting about, something so stupid and trivial it never even made it into my diary. I was sitting on the sofa in our living room while he peered into my face, frustration leaking out of every pore in his body. He threw his hands up into the air asking, why are you being like this? And I gave him the only answer I could. Because you refuse to marry me. Because it was the truth. Every resentment I harbored, from getting home after a long run to find a mess on the kitchen countertops to having to inject myself with shots every single day for 10 days just in case he wanted to have kids, it all boiled down to a blinding fury over the fact that Anthony didn't want to marry me. So you can imagine my confusion when he suddenly burst out laughing. I looked into his eyes then, and I saw that thing, 
that thing that always made me believe in him no matter what, a softness that transforms their hazel into a deep, velvety warmth that envelops me. What? I asked with a small, artless laugh. What's so funny? Nothing, nothing, he managed between chuckles. He then leaned in and kissed me, as if to add the punchline to a joke I still didn't understand. I love you, he said, before walking back into his studio, leaving me thoroughly bewildered. Perhaps the most pernicious byproduct of divorce is the prevailing temptation to regret. In high school, where I was a theater gal, someone in stage crew spray-painted onto the concrete walls of New Trier's underbelly, a life with no regrets is no life at all. I thought I was so wise and true and smart when I was 16 years old, but <laughs> two decades later, and I realized that it was merely another specimen of teenaged excremental melodrama. A good life doesn't have to be punctuated with hypothetical do-overs. The soundtrack to a good life, the best life, is the varying staccato of one foot in front of the other. While one might alter the pace, destination, or even the footwear, there is no direction but forward. Later that same year, in December, we took a trip to New York City. I can't remember why we were there. It could have been a race, work, uh, sometimes I worked out of our New York office, or, you know, just for fun. Regardless, we did what we always did when we went to New York. We rented an Airbnb with a kitchen so that I could host a small dinner party for my friends. We've been doing this for about a year. We called it the Vegan House Party of New York. For a while, I liked to rent B&Bs from parts of the city we weren't as familiar with, and because we were used to staying in Midtown or Hell's Kitchen close to Central Park, for that trip we rented a tiny studio apartment in Tribeca, crammed with books, old records, and a mishmash of furniture that, you know, all seemed to work together. A wiry light fixture that resembled a freshman art project dangled from the ceiling between two water pipes and a gilt-framed portrait of a smiling woman with thick dark brows peered away from a double bed with a surprisingly crisp white comforter and an upholstered leather headboard. We'd just finished hosting our vegan house party, where I astounded my friends with the, quote, best focaccia they'd ever tasted. Anthony was lying on the bed, and though it was three in the morning, he was still dressed in black jeans and a black t-shirt, which I realized then was the same outfit he'd been wearing on our very first date back in Chicago. The last of the dishes washed, it was time to brush my teeth and go to bed. I stepped out of the bathroom, and Anthony was videotaping the room of all things. What are you doing? I asked. I'm documenting our night in New York, he replied. I turned off the lights in the kitchen, and though I was exhausted beyond all reason, I declared to him, well, I need to write. Now, this wasn't me being one of those writer types who likes to pretend I must drop everything I'm doing because I am possessed with the need to write, and I am announcing this to you because I need you to know that I'm one of those poor, unfortunate souls subject to the whims and fancies of the artistic condition. Uh, kill me if I ever become one of those persons. I've actually been writing in my diary since my mother gifted me with one when I was 10 years old. And although the habit was sporadic at best, I knew that there were certain moments that I would regret not recording. And I'd had one of those moments earlier that morning, or technically the morning before. 
Anthony and I had been lying in the double bed of the Tribeca studio before breakfast, the light from the tall window across the room darting over our legs like fish trapped inside a tank. These quiet moments in bed, before he hopped out to take a shower and officially kick off the day, they were my favorite. I'd known for a long time that Anthony was one of those persons whose bodies grew fatigued with stillness. There were no stay-in-bed-all-day days in our future. He was happiest when he was moving, getting things done, and I, well, I was happiest when I pressed the side of my face into his shoulder while he slept, traced the rough angle of his jaw when he neglected to shave. I remember when he broke up with me all those many years ago, I threw my arms around him and buried my face into his t-shirt, wondering how I could ever bear to live without the smell of him. I let the thorn of that memory puncture me, only because I wanted to savor how sweet it would taste, lying there, cocooned in his scent as he dozed next to me in this random apartment in Tribeca. And that's when it hit me. The parking lot feeling. It was gone. In fact, it hadn't made a single insidious appearance since I'd met Anthony. After nearly four decades of living with it, I was practically dumbstruck with its sudden absence, and not just for a few weeks, but for nearly three years. I felt suddenly unleashed. I had permission. I had license to give myself to this man freely and without reservation because for once the universe was telling me, yes, go for it. You deserve this love. I thought of every step that led to this singular point. The number of times I'd huddled in the corner of some random bed wanting to turn my body inside out so I could hide the ugliness of my divorce and how I always felt like used goods compared to Anthony's purity. The parking lots I traversed to find my way ensconced in a love that made me feel good and empowered and happy and clean for the first time in my entire life. I wanted to blurt out all of this to Anthony, to shake him awake and explain the import of this moment, but I was too afraid that if I did all of it, the sudden enormity of my joy would come crashing down all around me. So instead, I gazed down at him and said to myself, Anthony is worth every unhappiness in my entire life. And I committed to writing it all down in my journal later that day. Hence, when I said to him, I need to write, I knew exactly what I needed to write. I slid into bed next to him and pulled out my laptop. I opened my journal, and of course, I browsed through all the old entries, fingering the moments that led up to that morning's revelation. At least some of my unhappy moments I'd had with Anthony, too. But even those, especially those, were a fair price for the joy he gave me. I started to write, and he started to read over my shoulder, something he never does. When I asked him for some privacy, he demanded to know, I want to know what you're writing about. Why is it so important? 
And after just a little more prodding, I read from a few of my journal entries, hoping that a stroll down our memory lane, even some of the bumpier parts of that path, made him as happy as they made me. After a few minutes, he got up to take his vitamins and said, okay, I'm going to go take my pills, but when I get back, I want to hear more stories. And I remember feeling so astonished that Anthony was so interested in my journals. He came back to bed, and I read from an entry I titled Mercy, dated December 23rd, 2014. This was right in the very middle of our breakup. I wrote, I walk into these meetings with Anthony with so much anxiety. I remember punching the button to the elevators at the office, telling myself, I can't do this anymore. Tonight, I'm just going to tell him that I can't do this anymore, that it's too hard. And then we see each other, and it's like everything clicks, and I don't have to be anxious anymore. Back when we were broken up, right before the Christmas holiday, Anthony invited me to join him in an elfing spree. We met up at Target and spent a couple hundred dollars buying gloves, hats, toys, headphones, journals, gift cards. And then we were off to the races. We went to Dunkin' Donuts, picked up more gift cards, then headed over to Mercy Home, dropped off gifts, and then to the ASPCA. Anthony claims that I was the weird one during our breakup, but I thought it was highly unusual for a couple who'd just broken up to be hanging out and handing out gifts together a few days before Christmas. But in the end, I really didn't care. I was just happy to be spending time with him, elated at making him laugh or hearing him say good job after I handed the last of our gift cards to a homeless man dressed like Santa Claus on Lower Wacker Drive. I thought maybe, just maybe, if I could string together enough of these happy moments, eventually Anthony would finally see what I knew. I read the final sentence of that entry out loud to him that night while he snuggled up next to me in bed. Quote, he made me laugh and I made him smile. And I felt like we did something together that was good and good feeling and lovely. And I want to do these things with him for a long, long time. A long, long time, he asked. How about forever? And in his hand, he was holding a small blue box. I held my breath and I opened it. Nestled inside was a diamond ring. And all I can remember saying was, wait, are you for real? Is this for real? Wait, are you for real? Oh my God. Will you marry me? He asked. And I don't say anything in response because I want to say something memorable and romantic and perfect because, you know, I'm the writer, but I can't think of anything. So I just say, yes, yes, of course, yes. And then he slipped the ring onto my finger. I called my mom a few hours later. He proposed I yell into the phone. And she started to cry. These were the secrets I shared with the stones as I stood in a technically godless church on a hot summer day in Rome, waiting to become Anthony's wife. I smiled, thinking of the unholy burst of laughter that erupted from his mouth that night and accused him of never wanting to marry me. 
right after he proposed, he confessed that he literally had the ring in his pocket as I screamed at him, and that the irony of it all was too ludicrous not to laugh, even in the face of my rage. He knew he'd be proving me wrong. It was only a matter of finding the exact right moment to do so. I fit an entire lifetime of memories between those stones, some of them still hanging above us in the air as if they too were taking an oath to one day testify to our love. Because it was, after all, the eternal city where forever stands the best chance of eroding any trace of doubt. As you might have picked up from my lingo, I used to be a fairly religious person. I met my first husband through church, where both of us were praise team leaders. He played the drums, I played the keyboard and sang. Without making any sweeping generalizations about institutionalized religion, I will say that our experience, i.e. mine and my ex-husband's, was based in guilt and shame from the get-go. I brought to our relationship all the feelings of ugliness I never bothered to unpack, which were, of course, immeasurably exacerbated when he and I crossed the threshold of physical intimacy, which scripture explicitly reserved for married couples. Moreover, the church that I attended when we started dating in college made it quite clear that I was forbidden from dating any man without permission from church leadership, which I'd never bothered to secure. And this story is for a different podcast. I was this viewed as a, quote, special case, one that required extra attention from my Bible study leaders and the roster of pastors that shepherded its flock with both the rod and the staff. As a result, I felt I was doing something wrong. The minute I said yes to the tentative, will you be my girlfriend, my first boyfriend posed to me after kissing me on the balcony of his one-bedroom apartment one night. Unfortunately, none of this changed, even after we got married. As I've talked about before, I viewed my relationship with my ex-husband as a constant tug of war with God. He didn't want me to be with him. I wanted to be with him. The longer I stayed in this unsanctioned union, the more God would punish me. Every single time my ex-husband lost his temper with me, it was God telling me, see, I told you so. Accordingly, I knew that every time I prayed to God, every time I begged him to make things better between us, I might as well be praying to a hole in the ground. I used to hate him for it, for denying me this one thing I wanted so much, to fix our marriage. Many years later, when I finally got a divorce, I remember thinking to myself, literally standing there in the courtroom, well, I guess you got what you wanted after all, God. And I still hated him for it. But when Anthony asked me to marry him, it was like my hearing finally crackled to life after getting off a very, very long flight. God's voice, which had been distorted by decades of shame and distrust and empty parking lots, finally came through loud and clear. This, this is what I've wanted for you all along. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. 
If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a comment or a rating below. And if you're inclined, please share this episode with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or even on social media. By next week, I will be back home in Los Angeles, and we will return to our regular programming. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day. Arrivederci!